0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. A quickie reminder that we are fast approaching episode 100 of this little show and if you're someone who loves this show and wants to tell me directly to my stinking ears, well I've got just the link for you. It's the first link in the description of this episode and the next couple of episodes the last, the last couple episodes as well. That'll take you to a video where I explain how I'm going to take my first step into triple digit episodes to thank you, and I would love you to be a part of it. Super easy, just download the Anchor app if you don't have it already, and take three minutes out of your day to leave me something that you'd like me to play live on the air. I will react to it, I will laugh at it, I will shed that single tear, that single dramatic tear if it's a heartwarming message, and we'll all have a great time. That's linked up, it only takes uh a couple minutes, like I said, uh, I've got a couple other options too if you don't want to leave me a voice message, but I'm, I don't know, it's a podcast. It's fun to hear your voice on a podcast. There's also only a few weeks left to get that taken care of, so if you've been on the fence, I did my best to make it super easy for you, so definitely jump on it, folks. This is episode 96. Welcome back. I hope you're having a great day. Let's get into some headlines, shall we? In semi-cringy but also kind of funny news, the LA Times did an April Fool's piece essentially trolling New Yorkers, basically from the perspective of New York City being a quote-unquote decent place to get a meal. One line goes a little something like, quote, my first culinary encounter was with pizza in italics, a mysterious kind of baked tlayuda covered in macerated tomatoes and milk coagulation and occasionally smothered with a type of thinly sliced lap cheong called pepperoni. Italics. End quote. The goal, of course, being to get a rise out of some diehard New Yorkers. Everybody knows how they can be. This was published. uh, If this was published like five years ago, I think it would have gotten a different response. But because of the recent rise in LA, the LA dining scene, I think it's a well-justified poke from one coast to another. The Guardian covered a new restaurant in the south of Norway, and it's an underwater restaurant. Have you guys seen this? The subtext says, quote, a, sub- a semi-submerged restaurant in Lindesens on the n- coast of southern Norway offers diners a sustainable menu and a window onto the seabed, end quote. And the restaurant is literally called Under. Its its design aesthetic is the part that got me most interested, especially when I started to see some of the photos. Uh, some of these shots are just insane, the waves crashing all around it, because like, part Part of it is obviously above ground so you can get into it, and then the rest of it is literally going underground, and it's kind of this at this 45-degree angle submerging itself. Uh, it almost looks like a whale that's breaching up uh, onto the shore. Uh, the light that gets produced in the dining room from that big glass wall that they have inside of it is is crazy, too. If, you know, Josh Skeens' ranch was meant to take you out into the uh, plains or the mountains or the prairie... Under puts you as close to the ocean as you can literally get without getting your your suit jacket wet when you're going out to dinner. It literally opens to uh, yesterday, today, uh, yesterday. It opened yesterday, April second, which is going to be crazy to see how it does. The article saying a six million pound structure. Uh, in in that, that's in the currency pounds, not in weight. Uh, it's, it's close to the village of Bali in Southern Norway's Lindesens region. It is designed to integrate into its environment and the concrete shell will function as an artificial reef under is also a research center for the marine life that flourishes in the surrounding waters. And it will host research teams studying marine biology and fish behavior. The restaurant itself seats 40, and a window 11 meters wide by 3.4 meters high offers a view of the seabed. The lights have been installed to attract sea life to the window, end quote. And I realize I'm kind of reading the article at this point. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, it's, it, it's not very long. I also want to touch on the way that this article is written, I thought was really, really interesting, by The Guardian. It's almost Instagram-y in nature, uh, if you go ahead and take a peek at it. The focus is mostly on the photos, and then there's like two or three sentence captions next to those photos. And that essentially makes up the article. It almost tells the story without being one giant block of text, and then a small photo, and then another giant block of text, and then a photo, like most articles are written. And I can only imagine that makes sure that the article is relatively short and to the point as well. It, doesn't, it makes sure that the, the author of the article doesn't drone on forever uh, just to get a word count, right? I'm not saying that journalists should all ditch long-form articles. I just think it's smart on The Guardian to kind of see, what if we wrote our articles with photos like Instagram and captions like Twitter, at least that's how I'm seeing this This being written. So carrying on. The chef is Nikolai uh, Elitzgard. And as far as some other design elements where you enter, there are more lights than when you descend into the dining room. So it's like that feeling of going from, you know, like the the outside world into going underwater. So that the, it gets dimmer and dimmer as you descend into the restaurant, which is kind of cool. The menu costs 199 British pounds. Again, this is because the uh, the Guardian is covering it. It's booked all the way out through September, unfortunately, although it, the 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 web the article does say that you can still get some tables throughout the summer. The menu focus is going to be on super unique and less popular products from the ocean, which I think is kind of cool. Overall, uh, I think it's dope to see a concept like this come to life. I think there are a lot of these ideas that can get kind of gimmicky, right? Like we're going to put a restaurant underwater. Or we all know like the Ice Hotel. Um, we've all seen kind of like the Sound of the Sea dish from Heston Blumenthal. And this actually takes you into the environment. I think, and with so many people being experience-focused, especially from my generation in 2019, I think it's a no-brainer to have a super-focused project like this, especially in that area of the world, right? I still believe that Norway has the best seafood on the planet, uh, second only to like somewhere like Japan, and to lean into that is just incredibly smart. I'm not saying this is 100% genius. I'm sure Under has its own set of problems to deal with, like any endeavor like this, but uh, let me know your thoughts. Would you go work at a place like this? Do you? You want to go have a meal next to a giant aquarium that's also the actual ocean do you think food like this is too much like noma especially from the photos that the guardian has posted please tweet at me or let me know down low in the comments because i think uh i don't think this is going to be the last uh in the environment restaurant that we see especially with uh places like meal in um meal or central in 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 south america happening as well Sam Pellegrino announced its world's 50 best list for Asia. It's linked up in the show notes if you haven't already creeped on the full list. Uh, Spoiler alert, Odette is number one this year. Other standouts for me are my buddy Danny Calvert at Boulogne with number 15, my buddy Long at Mume. It's not his restaurant, but he's a a, a big player there at Mume. So that's uh, number seven. And one of my favorite meals I've had in Japan ever, Den, actually got number three this year. So definitely some networking at play from what I can see. I can literally connect the dots with people who have a say in the voting and then also see how it's tied to certain restaurants moving up on the list. But alas, the list is the list. Corruption is corruption. We've talked about that before. If you're wanting to get a new job at a, a re- new restaurant in an Asian country, here is basically who is making headlines. So if you're crushing it at a place that just got recognized as well, and you you either moved up on the list or you're a newcomer to the list in general, congratulations. It's, it's, it's always great uh, to get some to, some some friendly shout outs from the people that go out to eat at these restaurants all year, all year round. So next up, I just want to kind of put this on your radar, Uh, quote, a styrofoam cup of watery broth, orange jello, blue Gatorade, low fat vanilla yogurt, a juice box of wild berry flavored boost breeze, a packet of Shake powder and generic saltines neatly lined up on a dull gray hospital tray. This was among my husband's first meals in over two months, end quote. And I talk a lot about this show about different ways to win, and this article is all about meals in hospitals, specifically asking the question, why does hospital food have to be so bad? And I don't want to make it a main story because I personally don't have enough insight to lend any expertise. I've never cooked in a hospital. I've never cooked in any sort of cafeteria environment. Most of you know that I'm dealing with some poor health that's affecting both my parents, so it definitely uh, hits home a little bit. Thank goodness it's not too heavy on the hospital side of things, at least right now for them. But, I can definitely understand one of the big takeaways from this piece, and that's this fact. What people are eating has massive ripple effects on their physical and mental and emotional health, right? We all know that. Eating food prepared by other people is a very human thing. And when that can be present in someone's life, especially if they're going through a recovery or a treatment, that can be super beneficial. So, this is just one of those on your radar kind of things. I think we all know about Dan Gusty doing it with brigade and kids' lunches in schools. Could you maybe be the chef who brings value to people and makes their lives better through your food? It's just you don't happen to be doing it in a restaurant, you're doing it in like a hospital or a clinic environment. Maybe you're super passionate about this or you see it as a problem that maybe you could solve. I would love to have. Have one of you folks be the cha- that kind of change in the world, especially with uh, so many people talking about restaurants not being their ideal route, but they do want to make people happy with their food. Um, I don't know, maybe you can be that 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 chef that that makes that change. So the article is linked up; it's definitely worth your time if it sparks anything in you hearing these kinds of stories. Next up, I'm saying this one is a headline. It's really just a check-in. We've covered the closing of David Boulay's restaurant all those months ago. I came across something. I don't remember if I got advertised to on Twitter or if it was Instagram, but I, I wanted to give you guys an update on what he's doing now, because like I said, I got an advertisement that was like Boulay something something, and I was like, what is that guy up to now? Uh, and it's actually kind of cool, and it's something that I, they've had in the works since way back when I staged there in 2011, so it's cool to see it all uh, kind of develop and, and see what it looks like now. So they've got so many concepts, it's a little tricky to keep them all straight, but this is what I, able, oh, I was able to glean from their bio section. They've got three physical locations, right? There's the old boulet and then there's the, the boulet that was next to that. And for anybody who's worked there or knows anything about boulet, you'll know kind of what I'm talking about. And then there's this new kitchen space and it's called boulet at home which was designed by a really high-end home kitchen company, and that's linked up in the article. So David himself has been traveling to places like Peru and Japan to learn all about how food can affect your health, and more importantly, how to cook in a way that helps facilitate that. Maybe he will be the one to be the hospital chef, tying all these stories together. I ass. Quote, whereas the current boulet accommodates around 120 guests, our new boulet will be just 20 or so seats. The new boulet will tailor guests' menus to their specific needs and will be designed to optimize the healing power of food. He will create a healthier formula of eating. It will not be a quote unquote health clinic, but rather a restaurant of high standards, romantic and sensual in every detail. Supreme culinary excellence through ingredients and techniques will be the focus. The true value will lie in educating the diner in terms of why we choose what to offer that evening and how they can employ our choices into their lifestyle outside of the restaurant through small gifts of our healthy building blocks, end quote. And as far as a bit about the boulet at Home space, so again, the quote I just gave was for that first OG boulet space, the one that got you know the rave New York Times uh, reviews, got Michelin stars. Um, I think it was just one Michelin star. Maybe it had two at one point in time. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong here. But as far, so now moving on to the boulet at Home space, that's a new one. Quote, there will be also be hands-on cooking classes with chefs and doctors and cooking classes with professional chefs. This will give our audience the confidence to see professional cooks using, quote-unquote, domestic kitchens. Again, remember, they partnered with this high-end home, uh, home kitchen company. Simple execution and the... And the power of the living pantry will be the focus as well as the topic of this highly anticipated forthcoming cookbook end quote spoiler alert david boulet is coming out with another cookbook so overall this legendary new york city chef still has some gas left in the tank he's got he's got the gray hair on his head when everybody else uh you know it seems like he's busier than ever he's definitely removed himself from the chasing stars path of life i definitely recommend recommend you watch my ego is the enemy video if you're new to the channel and haven't seen that yet. I think this is honestly an incredibly smart move for him. He's taken something that he's incredibly passionate about, cooking for health, and using the brand that he's built up over his career. And he's going to use that to kind of as a springboard to help bring all of these ideas into reality it's something that you don't often see at his age trying to open up, you know, most people are trying to open up the boulé in Vegas or Miami or London to try to get the license deal and and license the brand that he's built but i i remember when i staged there in 2011 boulé was running the pass and he's an old dude, right? But the the, the original boule location opened in 1985 and still to this day remains one of the places that's produced an incredible amount of skilled chefs. If you track the lineage of people who have gone through that kitchen, it's a pretty dope roster. And I'm not saying you should think about opening up a home kitchen cooking class space as part of your legacy, but think about having the self-awareness to see what's best for you. I don't think anyone was asking boule to close. I think everybody wanted, you know, this restaurant, this legendary restaurant to stay open as long as it could, but he he pulled a Michael Jordan. He went out when he was on top, and he's changing his focus now. And I think he decided it was that time, and that his time was better spent on projects like this. And I think when we look back, especially in New York City, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, Boulay will really be one of the all-time greats. I highly, highly recommend checking uh, this whole entire uh, ecosystem out if this is the first time that you're hearing of a chef like David Boulay. Next up, super quickie six-minute video from The Atlantic. It's called The Truth About Wasabi. And before you roll your eyes at me, take it from one of the top comments on the video. Quote, I thought this was going to be wasabi you eat at sushi is fake. This is the real one story. It turned out to be a very inspirational story of a 75-year-old farmer who lost his son, still keeps going strong for his family, his community, and the profession that he loves and believes in. End quote. And again, that was the first comment, Uh, top comment on the video. So yes, this is a 75-year-old Japanese man who uses this super old and fascinating farming technique to grow organic wasabi. He's passing it along to his grandson, who will ultimately be the ninth generation grower in his family. And I think the cinematography is amazing. Uh, they do a bunch of drone work, and the shots of him kind of harvesting and being out in the field is, is amazing. The information that he they, he shares in the interview that they do with him is super valuable. Um, and shout out to everyone that saw that nifty way that he washed the wasabi uh, with those power washer things in the video I got to get one of those for sunchokes or carrots like damn it's a really great way to get to get some dirt off of some uh, tough to clean places it honestly got me super amped to make videos like that for myself. I definitely see myself wanting to do some, you know, I find some really amazing product or, or producer or fisherman or something. And as I get start to get in more involved with food here in the Pacific Northwest, I would love to do like some purveyor profiles very similar to this video and whatever I call them, you know, on the people that I work with, because I think it's important. It's it's the, all the chefs before me have always stressed the importance of, of, of your purveyors and where you're getting your food. From, And I think it's a way for me to share their stories and bring more value than just buying their stuff by making content on them. Um, I've also got an Instagram post lined up for this photo that I took of Wasabi when I was in Tokyo. At Tsukiji Market. It's definitely one of my favorite uh, shots of my trip to Japan. So it's always it's always dope to interact with these ingredients that, um, you know, people talk about here in the U.S. where, you know, you go out to sushi and people are like, you know, that's really horseradish, right? And then you actually get to see it, you know, kind of in the flesh. Uh, it's it's it's, it's kind of cool. And and, and it, it, it's understandable why it demands such a high price once you see how it's how it's cultivated. OK, let's make sure this one stays as a headline. huh? The chef's table team Uh, Netflix, of course, has announced a new show and it's called Street Food. They hope to shine a light on chefs working in casual restaurants, food carts, and hawker stalls. They will be in Asia from what the article says, all the episodes. I don't think they're going to go to South America or any of the other places that are famed for their street food. And quote, it sounds like this new project will allow Gelb and Co. to continue down that path by telling more stories that focus on small family-run businesses that specialize in the cuisines of the chef's homelands. All nine episodes of Street Food will land on Netflix on April 26th, end quote. And I'm actually super surprised to see how this was received. I think most people seem excited by the kind of line in the sand that this uh, David Gelb and his team have drawn. I know we saw a few episodes of Chef's Table last season and the season before that that focused on places that aren't crazy high-end fine dining food. And they are a little bit more on the uh, the ethnic side of things as opposed to being super Western-style tasting menus. But uh, honestly, I thought when I saw this headline, people were going to be like, what, so you don't think noodle cart owners are chefs, but it doesn't seem like that. I think people are receiving this uh, uh, fairly well, and they definitely highlight um, Thai superstar Jay Fai, who was the first Bangkok street-side restaurant chef to receive a Michelin star. So I think we're seeing these lines kind of blur, right? Like, you can have a street stall that has a Michelin star, and then you can also be a, uh, a chef that cooks with very uh, home-grown intentions, a la Sean Brock, you know what I mean? And I think that's overall good. I think it goes back to my video about cook versus a chef. And I'm not going to hijack this story in any capacity. I just think that this is a great pivot in seeing that we have these two very different storylines that develop, right? And then they see that and then they take that and, and turn them into two different shows. And to give you some examples on that, in higher end restaurants, it's it, it's the typical story about the chef slash owner, right? The struggles and the obstacles and the vision. And then when we talk about these other places, that yes, they also serve food. It's more about the cultural connection that the food has with the pop possibly hundreds of people that eat there every single day. Those, of course, being those those street food stalls. And those are great stories there, too. Um, I'm 100% going to watch it. I'm really, really stoked to have it come out. I love street food of all kinds. I can only hope that they do an episode in India. I know that they said it was going to be Asia, but uh, as of the article being published, it's not 100% confirmed who is going to be profiled in these new episodes. But who doesn't love a good, good Chef's Table episode? Are they going to change the music in the beginning? Oh man. Is it going to be chef's table cinematography if you don't have the the violins and the cellos? Let's see what let's see what happens. Next up, friend of the show, Derek Simsek of uh, Scout here in Seattle. Most of you know him from Scout. It is not Scout anymore. He's kind of been off the map lately. I've had the pleasure of eating at Single Thread with him and John last month. So I, I have been in touch with him recently. Uh, but his new project has finally been made public. It is also going to be inside the Thompson Hotel, just like Scout was. Downtown here in Seattle, right near the Pike Place Market, but it's gonna—it's gotten a giant overhaul. The concept has been called Conversation. That's the new name of the restaurant. And Seattle Met broke the news a few weeks back, so I wanted to kind of give it a little headline spot here. So yes, this is a restaurant that John moved out here to help open. It's been super under wraps, but it's now out there in the public. I plan on getting Derek back on the show for season two once we cross into the the hundreds of of, of episodes, so that we can discuss everything that went into this. Um, I really want to get his insight because he had a heavy hand in helping, uh, with the design element. It's obviously his menu. Um, But they really gave him free reign to kind of run with it. And he had to restructure how he's going to do service. And I have so many questions. And I really, really think that he can provide a lot of value um, by being on the show again. So they're still on track to open in May, which is super exciting. Um, But the one reason that I wanted to cover it here is because of some of the backlash that I saw on Twitter after Seattle Met uh, announced the name of this restaurant and kind of the concept. But before I can get into that, um, we should probably give you some details on this restaurant, huh? Quote, Its goal, from service to food to design, is to offer an escape from digital life, or as the press release puts it, in this digital digital era where text messaging and screen swiping threaten the allure of face-to-face quality time, conversation tends to create conversation intends to create an environment where human connection takes priority. Semsec will augment the globe-trotting flavor profiles with modernist techniques. There will be soils, edible dirt made from foodstuffs, for example, and a foie gras dish made with counterintuitive textures, light, airy, and cold. Various influences will come together in dishes like lamb and crout with spring peas, sukimono pickles, and crispy prosciutto, a blend of French lamb and crout, Japanese sukimono, and modernist techniques. The The peas will come in various textures, including freeze dried. So, as of now, the menu will be a la carte. There's definitely a tasting menu possibility when they weave that language into that tasting menu as well, saying, quote, The chef. Uh, the, the tasting menu will, quote, have the chef talk to you kind of thing. Get it? Conversation. And they also announced the idea of having someone come by and literally snag your smartphone during the duration of your meal, almost like a phone valet. Does that make sense? So after all these details were announced, some people on Twitter were not too happy about it. I saw a couple of retweets saying, you know, it, it's just food. Why does everything have to be so hipster? Phone valet and edible soil is way too out there kind of thing. You know, you get the point. And I need to remove my bias to kind of give you my opinion on this. The last thing I want is for this to be a show where I only say good things about my friends, right? But I also need to acknowledge where the connections and relationships are. So do I think that this is an easy target for people to scoff at? Yes. Do I think that Derek could have designed this to be a safe and profitable hotel restaurant with a club sandwich on the menu? Yes. He has clearly got the skill set and the location and the resources to do an ambitious project like this. He's been operating in this shell of a restaurant that was designed by a different chef in the past, and he's kind of wanting to put his flag in the ground, and I think it's smart for him to to, to go forward and, and be a little different, right? I asked myself when I was writing this, how would I react if I saw this story out of Austin or out of Detroit? And I honestly would have thought it was a great idea. Comedians do it, right? Like where, where, where they make you give up your phone before you go into the show so that you're more present also so you don't record their their bits. But we, we, we constantly see articles of people writing about social media and food. We're literally going to cover one later in the show here. And to have one literally start that conversation of what if we offer that as an option for people, right? I don't think it's all that crazy. We've seen all these uh, examples in the past of, you know, you go to Brooklyn Fair And they prohibit phone use, or at least they used to. And it's an entirely different animal, right? What Conversation is doing is offering an extension of hospitality, and that has a completely different intent. So if you're someone like me and you love taking photos and IG storying your meals, this might not be for you, like the phone valet system. But for someone who finds himself mindlessly scrolling through Twitter or Facebook at the table, this could be a really comfortable and even welcome addition to your experience. But as with all ideas, execution is, of course, the game. And we'll definitely have to see how it develops. And most of you also uh, know that I'm not one to give feedback on food before I've experienced it. Um, I've kind of drawn that line in the sand for myself. I don't like people who talk or scoff at at food of course there's people that have been scoffing at the edible soil and the modernist technique we we all know that modernist technique can be fun and it can add an element that's different to the food right i said it i think two episodes ago too many people are relying on cooking over fire and japanese aesthetics and if a chef has a skill set to make something that's delicious and unexpected and it just happens to include this new modernist technique that wasn't available 30 years ago i say why not right I think people are too quick to judge before experiencing it for themselves, and you'll, you you can bet that I'm going to shoot a This Place Called episode for conversation, and I'm also going to have Derek on the podcast again to give you folks some more information because I'm genuinely interested in a concept like this, and I love that he's doing something creative two quick headlines here to end this. The first is a story from Frank Bruni as an opinion piece in the New York Times. And it's all about eating out as an old man. And I say old jokingly, of course, he's only in his 50s. But it's it's basically his frame of reference on, you know, I used to be young and I used to like going out and, and seeing all these different flashy things. Now I value different things when I go out to eat. And I think it's a great way to think about target market and an exercise in thinking about, you know, from a chef's perspective, who is this for? This food that I'm cooking, this experience I'm designing. And it's a great read if you're a young whippersnapper and you want to learn about why, you know, certain tables will sit there for four hours and spend $5,000 on wine and cigars. And certain people only want the thing you light on fire table side. I think you should read this if you're interested in that, you know, consumer psychology and why different consumers want different things. And to kind of give you some insight on it and to end this this headline, I will end with this quote here, quote, a close friend of my age put it this way. I used to care about being entertained and now being soothed feels more important. Life, it turns out, is hard. Restaurants shouldn't be, end quote. And the last headline here, Food and Wine put out an exhaustive list of the best coffee in each state of 2019. It's a mammoth of a list. It's actually the second year that they're they're doing it. I don't know how I missed the first year's edition. I'm frankly pretty surprised that they didn't partner with a sponsor and find a way to sell this. At least from what I saw from the article, there there wasn't any monetary gain that they made from this. Uh, they were just hoping that people would read it. And I, I just think it's incredibly well done. It, 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 was, it was done with the capacity that... They could have partnered with uh, Lexus or, or, you know, even like a company like Michelin, not Michelin themselves, but like a company that encourages travel and encourage people to get out there and and explore these coffee places because it it was that well done and well researched. And I'm going to use it as a resource during my travels. Most of you know that I use coffee shops as a way to explore a new city. But how in the world did they come up with this list? Quote, in order to claim the top spot in your state, you had to be an actual coffee roaster for at least two years, if there was enough local competition to make this possible. Having great coffee was important, but as in 2018, we've held a more consumer-focused approach. This is not a trade publication. Focusing on roasters who are able to deliver the whole package or close to it. Spectacular coffees, great retail operations, and passions for hospitality, community, and better still, complete sustainability. End quote. So the project itself took 12 months to complete, so they are probably already working on 2020's edition. And, quote, in nearly all cases, site visits and tastings were conducted anonymously. At no point in the process did I solicit free samples or accept any kind of influence over the process. It's admirable how many of the top operations remain content to let their work speak for itself, but it's also interesting to see which roasters are now relying on hired pu- publicity guns to buy them their le- legitimacy, end quote. And I think that this is a really fascinating example of someone seeing, oh, people are willing to to take a look at restaurants that are really operating at the top of their game and seeing awards being given out and... Uh, visiting them more frequently and people can get press for sharing their thoughts on these places. What if we did that with coffee? I think that's just a fascinating connection there. And what's great is they included a winner for each state and then also a section underneath it called tasting notes where they go into some proverbial runner ups, right? Which is great for someone like me because For example, I live in Washington State. Their pick for Washington State is down in Olympia, which is, you know, maybe about an hour south of here. So I went straight for the tasting notes to see who they recommend in Seattle. So shouts go out to Espresso Vivace and La Marzocco Cafe, two amazing spots here in town to kind of get your fix. So I definitely recommend checking it out to see who was picked for your state, especially if you're a a coffee crazy person like me. All right, that's it for headlines. I need to go ahead and say a, a massive thank you to the amazing folks on Patreon that help support this show with their hard-earned dollars every single month. I really, really appreciate it. Going into today's beverage, uh, it's it seems like it's it's nighttime, but for the folks watching on the video side, that will start to see that it's a uh, getting brighter and brighter. It is quite early in the morning. This 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 episode started recording at six thirty in the morning, so this is my first cup of coffee for the day. A uh, Ethiopian uh, Guji from Stumptown, most you know that I love this coffee. Uh, Anna and I will frequently pick this over any other uh, coffee that we can snag at the store. Um, It's not as warm as when I started this show, but you know, that's what happens. That is what happens. Main stories going on to the main headlines. I was going to make this a headline, but damn it, Solejo, your writing is too good. I gotta elaborate a little bit more. So it's called, and you might have seen this, quote, The French Laundry's Bong Course is a brilliant act of artistry, end quote. Whew, there's a lot of words in that that headline that we need to unpack. So for those of you that haven't been following along with recent pieces of press related to Thomas Keller restaurants, Pete Wells wasn't too happy with his last meal at Per Se. And referencing one of the components in a dish, he compared the, quote, mushroom bouillon to dirty bong water, end quote. And I think some of you remember me covering this as a story, or maybe, especially if you're in the New York dining scene, you remember this article. Where he kind of uh, slashed the 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 component that was poor tableside for him. So in Soleil Ho's recent trip to the French Laundry, the sister restaurant, of course, of Per Se, they did a tableside presentation with a bong and mushroom bouillon as a quote unquote play on that review. End quote. Her thoughts? Question mark. Quote. He winked at us as he poured the porcini mushroom broth, indeed the color of rancid bong water, into my bowl. I marveled as it cascaded over the vegetarian pot-au-feu of carrots, ox heart cabbage, and a layer of leeks wrapped around black winter truffle confit. Made it look like a beef bone, which is kind of interesting. It was a brilliantly executed in-joke, end quote. Please definitely read this if you're into tongue-in-cheek references. A PR person uh, from the restaurant says that this is kept at the restaurant for industry folks, the bong itself. And that makes me think that they didn't just buy it for her meal. But to continue on, quote, in jokes aside, there's an argument to be made that the bong fits in perfectly at the laundry, a restaurant that's played a key role in the American modernist food scene. Consider modern art where the surprising context of an object is the point. Think about Klaus Oldenberger, Jeff Koons, who used objects with vernacular resonance like giant office supplies or balloon dogs crafted from polished steel to transplant awe into things we don't normally think twice about. By bringing banal objects into art spaces like the gallery or the museum, the artists make these familiar things alien. And we viewers are prompted to step outside of ourselves and reconsider the shapes and colors that we've grown used to glazing over every day. End quote. And as for her thoughts on the gesture of pouring at table specifically for her, quote, but for him to parade around those memories in front of people in front of a critic, nonetheless, is a much braver tack. It comes off as a subtle tugging at his collar, a moment of chaotic energy to show that he's learned from his mistakes. And as for what I thought about the rest of the meal, more on that later. End quote. Oh man, am I excited to read Solejo's review of the French Laundry? But in all seriousness, how amazing is this example? How much did it suck to see that review from Pete Wells? You, your, in my opinion aside, I think this should serve as an example to all of us to not take any of this too seriously. This this career thing that we that we do. If you get a bad review, but your restaurant is still busy and you can actually have the humility to make fun of yourself during a dish presentation that also acknowledges the negative feedback. At the same time what a win, right? Like, what a shining example of what it means to be great. I think so many people focus too much on, you know, this week, this month, this year. But when you're playing an infinite game, something that I've talked about at length in a podcast earlier this year, you get an incredible opportunity to recall something from two years ago and chuckle at it, right? Because you see how things evolve and and how important it is to keep moving the needle forward. Do you have thoughts on this? Is there is, is there a view that you've gotten maybe in the past that you can flip on its head and present in a new way? or a fun creative way I know know chefs who struggle with demons for years because of bad reviews and this is effectively like taking that you know, chefs read bad Yelp reviews concept and turning it into a tableside presentation I think it's just such a fun time to be alive alright, next up Cracking my, uh, cracking my knuckles here. This one's got some weight to it. Do you guys know, uh, Kwame Onuachi? Onuachi. Sorry if I'm, uh, pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, we've covered him before. Actually, last episode, uh, we talked about his restaurant, Kith and Kin, and his kind of story arc that he's been going through. He's gotten thrust into the public spotlight again because he's got a memoir out, and if that name sounds familiar, it's probably because of the massive amount of press he's been getting lately. And he also did a piece with Food and Wine um, about being a chef of color and how that's been on the day-to-day for him. Eater has really run with it, and they've been posting stuff about his memoir all over. They've been doing interviews. And I've seen a couple of you folks retweet it as well, and that's kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to dig deeper into it. Also, because I, I mentioned it last solo episode, I consider I consider Kwame a peer in certain regards, right? We both spent time in three Michelin-starred restaurants when we were young. We both externed per se. He kind of went the top chef restaurant route. I went the become a sous chef and start a podcast YouTube channel route. But I feel like we can relate on a lot of these topics. And I want to kind of clear the air and offer another perspective. And hopefully both stories can be super helpful and help you in your journey. So... There are a lot of stories linked up. I already alluded to the first one. It's from Food & Wine, and this quote kind of might set the stage for this one. Quote, Despite the clipboard of the day's prep hanging before me, the neatly folded towels next to my station, the cake tester peering out of a button of my dry-cleaned chef coat, and executive chef Kwame Onuwachi embroidered on my Brigard jacket, all he sees is a young black man who couldn't possibly be at the helm of a -a three-service-a-day restaurant that is in the Michelin Guide. He just sees color, end quote. And this is in regards to... um, you know, like uh, purveyors coming in and dropping off orders and they will only want to talk to the white guy right like they don't assume that someone of color can be can be running the show right and what he's calling attention to in this piece is look I am a minority in this. The majority of fine dining restaurant owners are male and white, and the piece is called A Jury of My Peers, basically requesting for more diversity in food writing, more diversity in restaurant ownership. The piece saying, quote, hiring more people of color to review, patronizing more restaurants run by up and coming chefs of color. Hiring and investing in people from all walks of life and celebrating different cultures is a genuine way to help support this kind of stuff. Let's not for, let's not let's not forget. It's only been fifty five years since we've been able to sit in restaurants legally. My mother is fifty four for context. End quote. Okay, so that's piece number one. I'm not brushing it under the rug. We're going to get back to it. I'm giving you all the information so then we can get into that. Okay, so piece number two is kind of a call-out piece. So in Kwame's memoir, he references his time at 11 Madison Park, and he tells this story. I'm not even going to paraphrase it because so many things get taken out of context when people paraphrase longer blocks of texts. Um, but I, I, and I, and I, I would not want to be the root of a bad rumor. So please read it if you can see how the facts get presented. But this is the very, very brief TLDR. Chris Kent, who went on to be the chef de cuisine of Eleven Madison Park, allegedly said racist derogatory comments to Kwame while they both worked at Eleven Madison Park. Kent is now emphasizing his denial of these claims, saying, quote, It's just hurtful that someone would think that it's a race-related issue. I'm sorry if I've ever made anyone feel like that, end quote. And then there's also a line from Kwame's memoir saying, quote, The most insidious kind of racism isn't always being called the N-word. At least that's shameless enough to get you fired. It's the unspoken shit, the hard-to-prove, hard-to-pin-down, can't-go-viral, day-to-day shit. It's being passed over time and time again. It's having opportunities you know you you earned never materialize it's that no matter how hard you work it's never good enough it's not even seen end quote and 11 madison park says that flint is no longer with 11 madison park and that they weren't aware of any of this happening although the piece does reference that flint could be quote-unquote tough at times think punching walls and and things like that and they're going to investigate further apparently at least that's what they told uh the press Okay, then, in the promotion of the book, this is moving on to a different piece, right? Hillary Dixler from Eater sat down with Kwame for an interview, and they talked about this concept that keeps coming up in the memoir of, you know, working your way up and, quote unquote, paying your dues. And it's referenced pretty frequently, and I'm going to read you a little bit of the Q&A here to give you some context, only because I don't want to... uh, Take take any of this out of context or paraphrase to the point where I'm I'm missing any of these nuances So excuse me if this is a little bit uh, long-winded The first quote that i'm gonna read here is the line that motivated the entire piece that motivated the whole interview Quote more infuriating is a question about to whom I should have been paying my dues It seems like the only ones keeping track are the white guys with tall hats And how did those guys get into the club by paying their dues to older white guys with even taller hats end quote Okay So starting on the interview here, Hillary asks, and again, I'm slightly paraphrasing here, quote, what happens when you're paying dues to people who don't look like you, who operate in systems that are meant to keep you out, but also you understand why one would have wanted to work at Per Se or Eleven Madison Park before doing something on their own? Do you feel like there's some way for this industry to make room for young people who are in that period without defaulting into the dues paying mentality that seems to be inherently stacked against them? End quote. And then Kwame saying, quote, as a young professional of color too, you teeter on, Okay, I go here to this restaurant, I pay my dues and then eventually I'll get to open up my own restaurant. The reality is you go there nine times out of 10. It's the unspoken racism, the not moving you up, the let's try again in a year and see where we're at. It's not necessary. For me, I had my own path. I got exposed to fine dining, one, from living in New York City, two, going to the CIA and seeing the opportunities that were there for the externship program. For me, it was a different narrative. At per se, I didn't get paid to work there. That's now a real reality for people in general. But from where I come from, where we take care of our families, it's a collaborative effort when we're at home. I pay some of the electric bill and everyone pitches in to make ends meet. That's not a reality for everyone. It shows in the systematic oppression. I don't think it's necessary. Really intentional, but I remember there was this other kid that was an extern there, and he lived downtown near Per Se. Yes, he didn't get paid either, but his rent was paid for. His parents sent him money every weekend, and he was able to get there easily. I had to travel all the way from the Bronx and spend two hours in transit to get to Per Se. It's not an equal level playing field. When I get there, I'm exhausted before I even step through the door. I remember one chef telling me I was the laziest person he had ever met in his entire life after I had to work at 6 a.m. as a backup chef for Chopped, a paid job, just so I could afford to pay rent to come here. I was noticeably tired. No one ever asked, hey, are you okay? It was like, what are you doing? You're so lazy. You know that? You're the laziest person I've ever met in my entire life. And meanwhile, I was there working for free, busting my ass, end quote. And I'm inserting another quote from Kwame here to give some context. This is from another question along the same lines. Kwame saying, who am I to say that you're not ready to go on and do their own thing? Who are they paying their dues to? If anything, you're paying your dues to yourself. When you feel like you're ready, you should be able to go out and do whatever you put your mind to. This is a very short life we live. I would hate for someone to not strive for something and always have that. What if I would have just done this? Do you see why we had to cover the stories in this order? Hillary asks about calling people out by name in his book, a la this Chris Flint guy. And was he nervous or concerned about the repercussions from possibly doing that? And Kwame saying, quote, When people realize, oh, man, I've done that. I shouldn't do that anymore. I didn't know that these small little racist jokes affect people. When you're a chef, most people are just like, yes, chef, to you. I deal with that in my own kitchen. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, good, chef. And I tell my sous chef, go see how they're actually doing over there. They're just telling me that it's good. You have to push through that little area of uncomfortability, whether it's speaking up, speaking out, or just believing in yourself, end quote. He's also got some thoughts to share on young chefs. Keep in mind that uh, Kwame is 29. He says, quote, I don't really have the answers for you, which you should do specifically. I know as a cook I can give you what you need to work as on as a cook. Hone your craft, more importantly, keep your station clean. The normal things of being a good chef, that's the foundation. To garner exposure, there's a multi- multitude of things you can do. You can start writing, you can start doing YouTube videos, you can start doing pop-ups, you can start doing what makes sense for you. Maybe you want to open up a food truck after this. You can go right into that or After working in this kitchen, if you want to open a restaurant this big, maybe start with a smaller one. End quote. Okay, last article in this. There, this is the first time we've had four articles to link on one topic. This is great press for Kwame. I just hope that you're still with me on this story because this one really, really hits home the hardest for me because I remember people talking about Kwame because he was at Per Se just months before I was there. So literally what he talks about in this experience is exactly what I went through during my six months at Per Se. Kwame was there for four months, which I think was like the standard length of an externship. Um, I had a, I decided to stay on for a couple extra months uh, voluntarily, believe it or not. Uh, so then the reason that I that I want to preface with that is because a lot of the people that he talked about are the same people that also managed meat. So it was the same chef de cuisine the brigade structure was exactly the same. Uh, him and I were doing exactly the same prep tasks. So if anything, for anyone that was wondering what my my time at Per Se was like, uh, definitely read this piece that I've linked up down below. Um, and maybe just, you know, this, this will will serve as a, a storytelling uh, from someone who is much more proliferated at, at writing than I am uh, to kind of tell these stories. Okay, quick coffee, coffee sip here. Before we dig into this, because this is going to get meaty. He tells the story of doing the eggshells for the truffle custards. For those of you that don't know, Google per se truffle custard and you'll see. It's the idea of serving a dish inside of an egg. And in order to do that... In order to do that and make it kind of fancy and soigné, you need to remove the membrane from this egg. I think most of us know what that looks like. So at Per Se, this was done by using a tool to crack the top of the egg with a perfect circle. They would then, We would then separate out the yolks and the whites after you pour the egg out of the shell. The yolks would then would first go to pasta. The whites would go to pastry for things like uh, uh, macarons or meringues. And then you would take a tournée knife and score the inside of the eggshell. Then you would submerge the shells in a solution of water and distilled white vinegar. And then you would, uh, after they would sit there for a minute, it was usually warm water, you would go through with your finger and you would peel, I'm going to use my cup as an example here, you would go in with your index finger and you would slowly start from where you made the crack to kind of peel down this membrane. And you needed to make sure that they were perfectly clean so that the next day, the canapé station person had eggshells to make custards for however many VIPs were that there were that day. And there wasn't really a forecast because we were so busy, at per se. Uh, on, most, uh, on a lot of days, we would do lunch and dinner service, right? So on some days, you would need 30, 30 uh, eggshells sh- egg ready to go. And with the way that they, they were, your yield wasn't very good because any tiny little crack, if the circle wasn't perfectly round, if you cracked it at the wrong angle, if there was little tiny bits of membrane still left in there, it was considered unusable. And because of that, the yield was very low. Um, so... I will let Kwame continue here from his writing. Quote, even in the best case scenario, you lose lose about 30% of your eggs. Sometimes they crack funny, chipping at the point of incision. Some eggs are just not pretty enough to make the cut. Often digging in to remove the membrane, you'd catch the edge of the shell and the thing would chip. And since this was per se, one chip was one chip too many. Into the trash it went. The vinegar, meanwhile, is great at softening the bonds that bind the membrane to the inside of the shell, but also at softening the skin. The the, the repetitive action of scraping the membrane off with the softening effects of the vinegar meant that halfway through the stack, my fingertips were pinkish and cracking. Three quarters done, droplets of blood had begun to form. This this I noticed with some alarm and admittedly some pride. Looking down at my perfectly clean eggshells, I saw e- each one speckled with some blood. Before, because I was on egg, egg duty for one month, my fingerprints vanished. Basic training was working. Who I was before I walked into the kitchen at per se was gone. Even the knowledge I thought I knew, I didn't. There was the one. There was there was the way that everyone else does a task, and then there was the way that it was done at per se. End quote. And everyone that I know that worked that station at Per Se knows what it feels like to lose your fingerprints on your index fingers. All of us, all of us externs didn't have uh, index fingerprints. They bleed like they do when you start sharpening your knives as, as you're rubbing it on the stone. And it's bad because sometimes you'll have to do juices the next day, and you've got to deal with lemon juice getting into that, that raw fingerprint. and Or maybe you've got to do the project where you're frying ripping hot chestnuts, and your raw finger pads got to handle these fresh out-of-the-oil nuts. It was a pretty brutal environment um but okay more stories hopefully some of you are enjoying this i've been definitely getting some requests to share stories of my early days in the kitchen so i'm taking this memoir and ruining it with with uh with my own stories quote but one morning while i was in the prep kitchen i became painfully cognizant of how what of how what happens in a kitchen differs from what is said about what happens in a kitchen We had just received a shipment of mandarin oranges. We used them to make demi sec rounds that we served as an accoutrement to a fish main. It was my job not only to take the membranes off, but to peel the segments, scrape off all the pith, and dehydrate them. Even though they'd eventually be dried, it was important to only use the ripest, most flavorful mandarins, since the dehydration doesn't take away flavor; it intensifies it. The batch I was working with that day was clearly off. The oranges were were already desiccated; their flavor paler than what I was used to. Part of my responsibility wasn't just to prepare the oranges but to taste them too. I knew that if a diner sent back a dish or if it made it to the pass and chef de cuisine Eli Kaime kicked it back, it was my ass that was on the line. So when I saw these oranges and tasted them, I knew I had to say something. When the sous chef supervising the Comey kitchen at the time passed by, I told him I didn't think we should use the oranges. He grabbed a mandarin and looked at it. We can still appreciate its beauty, he said, which is a very per se way to say STFU. Quote, I don't, I just don't think it tastes good, chef, Kwame replied. What the fuck did you say? The Sioux growled, his cheeks flushing with anger. No one asks your fucking opinion. Are you going to question my taste buds? He went on bellowing. Nobody wants you to be here. At this, but at this point, I had recovered, Kwame had recovered enough to realize Kwame had just been driven into crazy town. Then the Sioux chef saying, why the fuck would you tell me that? I'm not your fucking friend. We don't have fucking conversations, he continued. Sorry if you're listening to this in your car with your small children. Profanity, folks, I'm just saying, saying what was said in the, in, the, in, the, in the memoir. So this goes on to tell two more stories about working on the Garbage Station as an extern making the salmon cornets and also sharing the time when he piped up during a menu meeting and actually got his idea featured as the big meat dish on the menu. For those of you that don't know, the menus that per se get written uh, over again every single day. So whatever you prep that day is no longer good. You the the structure of the menu stays the same, but say for example, it was a uh, wagyu as the as the meat one day, it would probably be lamb the next day. And if you're doing uh, the salad course, would maybe be a dish of heart of palm one day, and then the next day it would be a radish salad, right? Um, and the tasting menu stays the same, but all the ingredients, all the flavor combinations change. And that, that that menu is written after service. So if the last ticket comes in at 9.30, then that tasting menu for the, the the savory side probably ends at around 11. After you're done cleaning, it's probably around midnight. So then at like 12.15, you're sitting down to write a menu that sometimes takes an hour. So you're probably done uh, with your shift at like 1, 1.30 in the morning. And the, the story he tells here is one day when they were... Were, you know, sitting around at two in the morning, uh, really stressed about what to put as the big meat dish. So it's a it's a good story if you if you if you're into stuff like that. So. Oh my goodness, that is all the media coverage that I've deemed fit to paint the picture for you on this memoir, along with a few stories, of course. But let's dig into all of this. So first of all, Kwame's story is his own story. I am so proud of him for putting it out there, for putting all the work to give this project wings and to use his journey as a, you know, the buck stops with me kind of thing. So many people who have similar stories continue the abuse, accept the status quo. And that's how these things happen. I want to acknowledge right now how powerful his memoir is. I haven't read it in its entirety, but even judging from, you know, his reputation and the the stuff that he's definitely went through, I would never want any of what I'm about to say to undermine or detract from the fact that this is a necessary piece. And anybody who's 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 wanting some reference points should read this. And I think the industry definitely needs this. Okay, so let's start with the representation piece. My thoughts on this piece specifically fall pretty in line with any piece that you've heard me speak on with female representation. I 100% believe in a merit-based evaluation of experiences, right? Flavor and execution. that, that that's, that's my ethos. I, I want to know how was the hospitality. And with so many people talking about the benefit of recalling memories with food, if the critic reviewing the restaurant has no food memories of Caribbean or African or Latin food... You could put your most cherished childhood memory on a plate, and without a reference point, it's going to get judged on how it tastes in this moment for that person, and it's not going to come with that flood of emotion and past experiences, right? So, that that's my that's my kind of rebuttal and my question uh, to Kwame. The first time that this kind of experience hit me personally was when I ate at a tasting menu in Thailand. They served us things that were, you know, plays on regional specialties or fun ways to serve local ingredients. And I didn't have any reference points. So all I could do was taste and enjoy. And it's one of those reasons that I have Dasvi on the podcast so often is because when you're creating art as an artist, you need to be empathetic to the audience who is consuming your work. And I think that's what great art and ultimately great food can do. It can transcend language and cultural barriers. Think think about, um, you know, a painting or a sculpture or a song where you don't have to have context to what it is, but you walk into that gallery or that first verse starts playing and, and you know it's good kind of thing. And that's where I'm ultimately going with this is to preach the optimistic path. I recommend this book, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday so much because unless someone is falsely saying that you had it easy... Isn't it much more satisfying to say, yup, despite all the people in my life telling me no, I was able to do it, right? Like so many of us know it's hard enough to do this stuff, to express yourself through food, to run a freaking business, to lead a team, regardless of the doors opened, regardless of the gatekeepers involved, it takes so much grit and tenacity just to survive, not to thrive, just survive. And I get concerned when I hear stories like this, because if it's read the wrong way, It doesn't leave enough emphasis on the fact that so many of us are the way that we are because of those shitty days, because of those moments when you're beaten down to your core, when you have to check your ego at the door because no one's putting up whatever you think you deserve today, right? And that's what... You know, that's what gives you what Kwame calls that bulletproof skin. He says it in in the thing. His time at Per Se gave him bulletproof skin because ultimately that's what makes it possible to go through something that he went through, right? Going front to a restaurant that ultimately flops and then to come back and successfully open a place that earned his Michelin star. That's a story that he should share how he got there, but <clears throat> how much did that tr- those trials and tribulations of being at restaurants like this prepare him mentally and emotionally to take on the abuse that is being out in the real world and being an entrepreneur, right? So going back to the per se times when he's talking about all these different kitchens in the article, it, there was almost this brigade inside of the brigade, right? And I'm, I'm going to give you some background on to what per se is actually like under the hood here. So if you're a prep cook, if you're a comi at Per Se, you got paid, and that was kind of like the beginning entry-level uh, times at, at the restaurant. Everybody starts in the Comey kitchen. If you're a sous chef from jean George coming into work at Per Se, cool, you start in the Comey kitchen, right? Maybe you spend two weeks, maybe you spend four months, maybe you spend a year in the Komi kitchen. That was not uncommon to see people who were very experienced, but they just the the timing wasn't right or they didn't show the the right skill set or they didn't get along with the the team well enough. They stayed in the Comey kitchen for a year. And everybody starts there. So the Comey kitchen is designed to get all of the oven-heavy, space-taking, appliance-heavy projects out of the way. So that when the Chef de parties would arrive later in the morning, all the juices would be done. All the chips would be made. All the cornets would be spread and baked. And that would make sure that when the kitchen space got tight, it was basically only knife cuts and stove work left to be done. And that was mostly what the Chef de parties did. So under those Comeys... So there's the, the chef de part, there's the, the, the management team. then there's the chef de partiz, they run the hotline and then there's the commis. and then under that there was a team of externs. that was like four or five of us. That team had tiers too, the extern tiers. There was AM externs and PM externs. And if you were new or if you sucked, you were an AM extern. Juicing thirty limes for the bar, peeling uh, f- five kilos of carrots, bagging cilantro oil in tiny cryovac bags, cleaning the dry storage, inventorying produce, refilling the pepper mills and the ninth pans with salt for chef departees. That's what an AM extern did. The the super bottom of the 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 rung tasks. If you were a good AM extern, you could help with chips, but most times externs didn't touch the chips. I remember one day we were so behind and I got to help make chips and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, Okay, then there were the PM externs. There was usually only two of them and they would come in with the chef de partie. So they were part of the chef de partie team. So if AM externs were part of the comi team, PM externs were part of the chef de partie team. They PM externs weren't technically better than comies but they were kind of this different class of people and like i said there were usually two of them and they would um they would pick the herbs that book that little book that i showed you uh folks in past videos where i would keep track of the 2500 to 3000 microgreens that i would pick every day yes that was my job when i was a pm extern uh, peeling the eggshells like Kwame says doing the maybe uh, doing the cornets during the service right picking parsley uh, maybe working with the butcher on a couple of meat projects or cleaning lobsters that was the pm extern's job. So for reference, I did about half and half. I started in the AM, and then towards the end, me and this little female Korean student made, named uh, Mijin were the, PM, the the two PM externs. Her and I were the, the PM externs. And if Kwame had one experience, I had one that was entirely different because for me, it was like, who wants to go online and do cornets? Mijin always got to go on the line. And because she was this cute, spunky Korean girl who didn't speak very good English, tell me that's being racist or sexist or whatever. Right. Like, yes, I'm half Indian, but I never told anyone that everybody thought that I was a white kid, because I didn't have a beard at the time. And the fact of the matter is, I looked at this like, oh, damn, I must not be good enough. That's how I framed it. Right. And that created this super intense fire in my belly that made me want to work harder. Do you feel me? I didn't blame it on anyone. I didn't blame it on circumstances. And please, I am not attempting to play any sort of victim by comparing myself to a Korean female chef in this case. But ask anyone that worked at Per Se at that time. Mijin was Eli Kaime's favorite. Remember, Eli Kaime was the chef de cuisine. And so he would always pick her over me with certain projects, right? Like, oh, we have this project where you get to actually butcher fish today. Jin, why don't you go do it? Justin, why don't you go pick the herbs, Right. I felt like I was always getting the short end of the straw as an extern. But, you know, I didn't complain. I kept my head down. I kept working. Right. And so where am I going with this? I love the story of I had to work so fucking hard to get here. I do think that there are better ways to equip people with the skills and the lessons they need to go out and crush it after they have left you, as opposed to being this berating uh, dictator style. uh, No, you don't deserve my respect kind of kind of environment. But and this is a very large but. I do get frustrated when people question the why should I have to pay my dues kind of mentality because it's clearly fueled by anger and all this pent up emotion. Right. Like any anyone listening right now could apply to get funded by WeWork Food Labs. We covered that last week. Anyone could set up a Square Spy site for $20 and sell tickets to your pop-up. Anyone could join one of these chef incubator programs or compete on TV or start a YouTube channel, right? The barrier to entry is so low. The gatekeepers have less power than they've ever had before. And I worry that discouraging people from following the path that you went down won't make them better or worse than you. They're just going to end up in an entirely different place. And at that point, you might not have the tools in your tool belt to help them, right? Like, I can't email my last chef and ask for help right now. I just can't. In a macro sense, I can on certain issues, right? But I've gone so far away from the restaurant path that any advice that he would give me on how how he might want to help me is possibly to my detriment because in his heart of hearts, he is a restaurant chef. He loved using the words my restaurant and it was one of his biggest goals and drivers and he's still crushing it and I love that. But I want to emphasize the incredible lineage that comes from the master and apprentice relationship one generation to the next one learns one teaches the taught teaches the learner and it continue on continues on right. Maybe I've gone too far down the path of, of where this article started. Maybe it's all twisted in my head. I don't know. What are your thoughts on all this? Because. I get frustrated that that people like Jessica Largie, people that like Kwame, people, these peers of my generation who went through this, you know, who went through this boot camp, this this abuse that goes on in some of these kitchens and that shaped them into the chefs that they are. And they don't want to do this to the next generation. If you don't replace it with something else, we end up with a different next generation. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. What's ultimately going to happen is it's going to be different, right? Like the army is the way that the army is, at least here in the U.S. or any any armed forces is because it's strict, because SEAL's boot camp is so fucking hard to get through. And yes, you can go through that and you can end up a different person and you can manage in a different way. I don't know. I guess I, I'm, I'm raising these questions because I'm concerned, because we don't know what happens, right? And so... We know what happens if it continues. I don't think it has to continue the way that it does. I am not saying that the culture of, of talking down to people is not true at per se. There is definitely an archetype of people that they look for. Uh, I think it's more along the lines of being, uh, what did the chef de cuisine of French Laundry always tell me? Focus, dedication, commitment were always the three that he wanted out of people. And I don't think any of that had to do with the color of your skin. Um, I remember being on cheese station for a very, very long time at French Laundry. Uh, and people would pass me that I didn't think deserved to pass me, but they would. And you can't tell me that that's because of the color on my skin, right? That was based on my performance. And so I get very, um, I, I always like to offer this as a rebuttal because I, <laughs> I was in the same exact environment. I went through the same exact bullshit. I went through the, I interacted with the exact same people as you. And all of my stuff was merit-based because I don't think anybody thought of me as a half Indian, half white kid. I think most people thought of me as a white kid who was very serious and kind of quiet. And, and yes, I maybe joked around a little bit, but I was very serious. I wanted, I was there for the right reasons. I just didn't get picked for whatever reason. Um, and so I, I I feel for Kwame in this in this realm of not being able to get picked um, But for different reasons, and I think that is kind of like the takeaway that I want to leave you with is don't think that this only happens to people of color. Don't think this only happens to people of certain sexual orientations. Don't think this only happens to people of certain genders, right? It happens to people who don't have the merit to move forward to not only but in addition Right, And that's that's maybe the only perspective that I want to 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 lend and, and that I want to, you know, I want to set the record straight and I want to make sure that people know all the sides, right? Do you agree with Kwame's suggestions on minority representation and paying your dues and work environments? I don't actually have any trips to DC planned right now, but I would 100% want to get Kwame on the podcast and have a conversation because I definitely don't feel like you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not in the camp of uh, I 100% have your back, Kwame, but I also don't 100% disagree with everything that he's saying because we we have so many similar reference points. That's like 300% of, of things to figure out. So let me know your thoughts or tweet at me. There was a lot to unpack in, in this whole thing. I feel like I could go on with this for another hour entirely, but I think I retweeted one of these articles when I first saw it come out. So uh, also, if you're Curious as to what I'm talking about, go ahead and creep through my Twitter and leave me a comment um, by what you're thinking about there. I'm clearly very passionate about and and something that maybe it's on me for not um, disclosing enough of the stuff that happened while I was at Per Se. I always just thought of it as, you know, like no one in SEAL team stuff is going to complain about the way that they were treated there. Like they know it sucked. They know that it made them into the person that they are. And so, because I don't see parallels there of people complaining, I, I've, I've, most people have have probably heard David Goggins and his his stuff, where he was like one of the only black people to make it through. Uh, it was at seals training, and he was like one of the one of he was the sixteenth person to ever make it through, and his outlook on it was just so different because he was like super motivated to really mind fuck the, the, the generals or the, the, the lieutenants or the people above him. He was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to outwork everybody. I'm going to be better than all of you. And work doesn't see skin color, right? I don't know. That's, that's kind of like where I want to go with it because I, I don't want people to see this and think, oh cool, this chef who has one Michelin star and did all this training says that I don't have to do that. And there's a way around it. And I worry that people will go out there and really get their faces beaten in when if all they really needed to do was bring value to a institution that's really executing at a very high level, see what they like, see what they don't like, and then make that into what they want to do. I took just as much experience from learning about what I don't like about running a restaurant from my experience at Grace as I did what I do like. And I think that's important that you don't necessarily have to continue and copy and paste what the generation before you did. I also think that there's so much potential with the Me Too movement happening and all these people getting called out for their past behaviors. Um, I mean, who from the White House here hasn't wrote a memoir after their experience there? And I'm not saying that you're just doing this to chase clout, Kwame, if you're listening. Hey folks, Justin here, jumping in during the edit of this. Two things I want to add that I forgot to mention. Remember those AM and PM externs I was talking about? Well, funny story, being a PM extern was so intense, my friend John Miller, the guy that I did the road trip with, him and I externed at per se at the same time, that's actually where we met for the first time, and he went from AM extern to PM extern, and after two days he was in the hospital for stress-related issues. And of course, keep in mind that he's got heart problems of his own, but that's how intense of a role that was. I also wanted to emphasize the way that the business is structured at per se. The brigade is so thoughtful that is very plug and play. There are recipes and systems and organizations put in place so that if people burn out or get sent home or quit unexpectedly, the restaurant doesn't lose its three Michelin stars. That's kind of how it has to be. And there was absolutely a culture of, listen guys, I have a stack of resumes on my desk of people that want your fucking job, so you better be on your A-game 100% of the time. It was very one-sided, right? I don't think anyone ever felt like per se was investing in them. I think it always went the other way. I think so many people were investing their own sweat and their own work into per se in hopes that they would leave a better chef or leave more experienced or more hardened or more skilled. And that's kind of why I equate this more to being in the army than anything else. If your goal is to learn how to defend yourself and how to fight, you can go into a really zen taekwondo dojo or you can join the Marines. Do you know what I mean? You're going to get to your end goal, but the path that you go down to get there is going to result in a different kind of warrior. And I think the same is true here. No one is saying that working at 11 Madison Park is a prerequisite for opening a successful restaurant. That's, that's crazy. But you go work at 11 Madison Park for a very specific reason. And it might not fit your idea of what an ideal work environment is, but it's hard to deny how that level of discipline shows in the quality of the food that's produced and how consistent they can continue to be. I hope I'm making sense. Okay, back to Justin. Yeah, I just think it's something that I really wanted to cover because it really hit home for me. So, again, please share your thoughts. Um, That's enough enough rambling here. Let's change up the pace a bit, shall we? That got a little bit heavy. There was this hilarious piece that came up called Instagram Mastermind Creates Fake Influencer Account That Racks Up Free Meals. So I wanted to take some time to go over that and kind of share my thoughts on the state of influencers and how they pertain to food. Because people making money off of all industries is happening right now. Things like makeup and travel and video games. But with food, it's an entirely different beast. So let's get into it. The, in this piece, the guy who created the fake influencer account, his name is Chris Buetti. And his account, which looks like it's been deleted, is called City. And he would, draw up a li- he would, quote, draw up a list of 50 Instagram accounts that posted quality pictures of New York City. He then created an algorithm to weed out bad photos, mostly from promotional posts, and select the good ones based on a variety of factors, including ratio of likes to followers. The data scientist then wrote a script that randomly applied generic comments like, who can name this spot? And you haven't lived until you've died in New York and as, as well as photo credits and New York City specific hashtags to these pictures. Once he figured out how to stimulate a seemingly authentic repost, Buetti wrote a script and shared these photos on Instagram during peak user times, as well as another program that helped his dummy accounts generate followers. Cool, throughout the day, my account methodically follows, unfollows, and likes relevant users and photos in order to have the same be done back to me he says. And when he reached 20,000 followers, the bot builder launched a script that searched New York City for restaurant accounts on Instagram and direct messaged them to offer to promote their business on City in exchange for, quote, a free experience, small gift card, discount, or coupon. The only manual work that Buetti had to do was actually respond to requests for sponsored posts, and he even created a script to alert him to these messages in his inbox to streamline that part of the operation, end quote. So, It's not a fake influencer account, right? Like that's not, yes, there is a person behind it, right? It's just he's using software and code to do a lot of the heavy lifting so that he's not the one, quote unquote, responding to all these things and doing a lot of the the actions. But there is a real person behind it. So I wanted to definitely dispel that myth right from the get. And the funniest part of this whole thing is that people weren't even mad about it, right? Some of these people that he was reaching out to, they were like, are the followers real? Because technically the followers were real. It's just how he got them was a little bit roundabout, right? So then these people would would see this and they would say, oh, cool. That's a worthwhile marketing investment. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. That's, that's true. So the piece ends by saying, by successfully executing this stunt, he inadvertently showed just how eager market- marketers and restaurateurs are to work with influencers, as well as how gullible some Instagram users are in terms of who they choose to follow. And in light of this reveal, restaurateurs are now forced to worry about whether the influencers reaching out to them with freebie requests are real flesh and blood humans or simply bots doing the bidding of social media masterminds, end quote. And that's the ultimate question, I think. But so many people forget that this is still the early days of this kind of marketing and consumer slash brand relationship, right? Like back in the day, I can only imagine the first time someone got a flyer on their car. It probably worked really well. And then all of a sudden it got annoying. And then it became socially unacceptable just to plaster your marketing budget on someone's windshield. Everyone is still learning how all of this works and how it integrates into their own businesses. And I'm one of them, right? Like I had my first two really worthwhile brand partnerships this year with Capital. Capital One and Four Seasons. And I do so much in-person word of mouth marketing for these companies that that partner with me because I genuinely enjoy using their products or interacting with their brands, but I can't include that in my Instagram stats. So like if someone books a room at the Four Seasons because of my word of mouth, how can I prove that that was a worthwhile partnership to them? right? Do I want partnerships that are transactional like that? I'm not sure. It's a great question. I'm working on getting my friend Connor on the podcast. He runs an account here in town called Find Me in Seattle. And we've had conversations at length about the ROI, the return on investment of working with influencers. So he's super transparent about the fact that it's not always the case. So sound off in the comments if you want to hear that convo, because he literally works with small businesses and specifically restaurants all day for his business. And he's I think he's got a really a lot of really good insight on the topic. But I definitely wanted to dispel that myth that it is a fake influencer because he's still a real person and it's still aggregating around a topic that he's doing. And it's not like an a influencer farm where he's got 16 accounts that he's running. I mean, maybe he does now, um, but yeah, I just think it's a it's a, it's an interesting time to be alive when you can um, outsource a lot of this work, quote unquote, and maybe it's not all the way a hundred percent genuine. But if you're curating a certain amount of content that is proven, like how is how is what he is doing all that different from Netflix deciding to recommend you content based on what you like, right? Like he's, he's curating a feed based on what he sees other people enjoying. And he's just using software to build it faster. Um, I don't think it's the end all be all and he's going to be able to retire based on this, uh, this kind of a job. I also just think it's an interesting uh, uh, point on consumer psychology of like, I followed those accounts early on in the days uh, where it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful account. You just want beautiful photos in your feed, not necessarily following people who are all about uh, doing promotional posts all the time. And I think it's just a fine balance. So speaking of foodies in general, and I am changing my plans on this, this one, I really wanted to dive deep into this piece, but it's not as clear and concise as I would have hoped. It kind of bounces all the way around the map. Uh, As you can see in the show notes, it's called What Was the Foodie? And it's almost a snapshot of dining and eating out right now. And don't get me wrong, I sincerely enjoyed it. It was a really good read, but and it it really ties a bow on this episode, and that's why I really want to end with it and make it the last uh, main story here. So it's, it talks about cultural nuances and representation, and cheap eats and fine dining, and the history behind how food in America became what it is today. And I won't leave you completely empty-handed here uh, because this, this line kind of bookends the article and bookends this whole episode. Quote, without a doubt, food has become newly political. The difficulty at defining that politics, however, lines in the fact that food culture is precisely coextensive with human culture. Food is virtually synonymous with life. We all need to eat, and we all need to stop and consider our eating habits. We are all really pondering a galaxy of concerns that all, seem all out of proportion with, say, the desire to eat a croissant. When a behavior happens constantly, it can almost be impossible to gain the Archimedean point necessary to see it clearly, end quote. So I highly recommend you read that. And next up, if you aren't, you know, driving or cooking or whatever you're multitasking with while I'm in your ears, it's definitely uh, worth your time. Direct answer coming up next. I have a couple of DMs that you folks send me, and with your permission, I like to share my answers with this podcast in a, in hopes to help the greater good. Um, the first one comes from Bradley Gorge 10 He says, Hey Justin, I'm a first-year culinary student at SAIT in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I found your channel a few weeks back, and I have a career fair tomorrow. If you see this, I was wondering if you had any tips on what to say to a chef when you're meeting them for the first time and asking for an internship. This was a couple of weeks ago, so uh, you, your your career fair has definitely passed. I, I hope it went well. I'm sorry I didn't have the time to uh, elaborate more before the fact. I think most uh, people that go to a career fair are looking to get access to, to candidates, right? And most of them are pretty entry-level things, but most of them are usually on the corporate side of things because most corporate jobs require uh, uh, some sort of a degree. Um, that's why a lot of these things are held at, at, at universities or schools. Um, they also want to know that they're getting someone that has a little bit of, of, of background. I think the worst thing that you could do is um, go up and expect to get a job right off the bat. I think if you have a script in your head and you're going to make the the win for you to um to have a job after your conversation, I think that's a that's a that's a fallacy, and you're not you're not going to to accomplish that. I think. What works best is if you can um, do a little bit of research beforehand, very similar to what I talk about in my Stagiaire email template, and see who is going to be represented at these fairs. And then, you know, pick the five to 10 people that you want to get to during your time at the fair and come up with like you have a stack of folders in your backpack, and you're very, you're very clean about how you do it right so you have a stack of folders in your backpack and one says restaurant danielle one says john george one says per se one says brooklyn fair and one says 11 madison park and because you know that all these michelin star restaurants are, you know all these places that you want to go are going to be represented at this place and so then you have your letter that you use my stagiaire email template for and that's your cover letter, and then your resume is clean and it's it's printed and it's right there, just behind it. And you also have some references to go along with it. So then that's your three page packet that you're going to to hand over. And then you approach this uh, this this stand that you've researched, and you figure out who that gatekeeper is. And regardless of who it is, maybe there's two or three people there, and. You introduce yourself, you, you ask them, you know, kind of what kind of positions are you hiring for? You, you, you lead with some questions to make sure that you're inquiring that it's a good fit for you at the same time. And if they happen to say, you know, do you happen to have a resume? Because everybody knows why they're there. It's a job fair. Then you say, yeah, I actually uh, wrote this letter because I've been researching your menu, and there's a couple dishes on there that really inspire me, and I've included this in the letter that I wrote for you guys here. And then how much more of an impact does that make as opposed to the guy just before you who just handed a a, a resume over, right? Um, So that's definitely worth your while. Um, The other thing that I I would recommend is to, and this is personality specific, I guess, but... I never felt all that productive when I would go to career fairs with other people. If I would go, you know, with, with a couple of friends of mine who also wanted to get jobs, some people really like having that moral support. I really like being strategic. I really like... Um, having the f- laser focus of knowing these are the seven places I'm going to hit today. These are the the, the people that I really want to speak with and the people that I really want to interact with and make sure that my documentation gets in their hands and then going for it. Because I know that some people can get distracted by having people around them. And sometimes if you literally approach a stand with your friend and if their resume looks better than yours, then... It's it's tricky because if they have either more experience or or they've had more schooling or you know what have you, you're not setting yourself up for success. If you can show because think of think of it both ways, right? Because what if their resume, your resume looks better than theirs? Then you're kind of saying these are the kind of people that I hang out with, the people that are not really on my same level, the people that aren't really. Um, I don't know, and I, I don't want this to come off as as being elitist or anything like that, but I think that there's much more value in you having a game plan and being focused and doing it by yourself, um, rather than kind of bouncing around some of these 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 stalls with your buddies and and asking for positions, if that makes sense. So hopefully that that answers that question. What to say when meeting a chef for the first time? Yeah, it, it, do it, Do your research. Make sure that you say. Um, certain things that inspire you about that chef. If you, if you were to walk up to me and say something like, I really love the idea of working media into food and, and, and using, uh, digital content to help drive revenue in addition to just, uh, serving tasting menus that would get my, my attention much more than dude, I think it's so dope that you worked at per se. You know what I mean? Like so many people know that. But what am I working on now? And why are you interested in what I'm doing now? And how can you potentially provide value to what I'm doing now? That's what I would uh, formulate your your conversation with. Okay. Next question. Uh, comes from, oh man, we are way down here in the, okay, this is kind of a long, long one, but, uh, I really wanted to answer it so that I could have a clean slate, uh, for, for next, for in two weeks, this podcast. So, uh, Ricardo underscore Marrero 94 says, been watching my videos for a while. He's 23 years old, starting to work with his cousin, who's an executive chef for Crave, a restaurant established in South Dakota, helping determine whether or not I have a passion for cooking professionally or just at home. He is not completely into the fact that he wants to stand his feet all day for more than 12 hours a day. To me, that is okay, but not something that I would like to do all the time. I love the rush of having to get the food out perfectly to the guest in a fast-paced environment, and having that attention to detail and the fast drive is awesome. Is there a way around this? I would also like to th- you to ask if, you, if I have an opinion if culinary school is a good option. I want to take it to Michelin star restaurants to learn and eventually build my own place. Obviously, if I have decided that this is the path I'm going to take. These are things that i've been I've been trying to answer for a while. maybe you won't read this, but I would love to know blah, blah 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 my I'm a motivator to all of you thank you i'm I'm happy that I can be that for for so many people um okay, so first question, is there a way around um standing twelve hours a day but you like the fast paced guest focused service? I I don't see why not like can you have a restaurant space that's open three days a week totally um yes you might stand on your feet for 12 hours a day in those days but you don't necessarily have to so this is the reason why different roles exist different kinds of businesses exist yes it might seem like on a chef's table episode, that chef is there all day, every day, but they aren't necessarily standing on their feet for all those days. Like maybe they're in meetings for four hours a day. Maybe um, they're doing administrative work uh, for four hours a day. Maybe they're on the pass for four hours a day, and then maybe they're doing ordering after the fact for for two hours after that. Right? That makes up a twelve hour day um, for 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 some of these. Um, more experienced chefs. And especially like if you're just starting off, you're definitely working for standing for 12 hours a day. But um, I don't like when when you are owning a place, you're not often running around on the line all day, you're doing more uh, higher level tasks. And so yes, you might stand on your feet for some time, but but you hire people to do some of that other work for you. And we've talked about that in the past. So I don't think that you have to squash your dream just because you don't, like, how many chefs do we know, and that we've talked about in that James Beard episode, that just roll in for six hours a day, and that's their business, and some people like that, and some people hate that, some people, like, want to work towards that, Um, and I don't think that you, like, you have to decide what that looks like for yourself, if if you're going to have this moral distress from feeling like uh, you're not giving it to your, giving it all to your restaurant, because you aren't in there for 12 hours a day, then you don't open a business like that. But if you can have the confidence to say, this is my business and I've structured it so that I can um, come in for the eight hours a day that I want to come in and I structure it so that, you know, my staff has has overlapping work patterns so that there's an AM shift and a PM shift and nobody at my restaurant works for more than eight hours a day. That's great. There's tons of restaurants that do that, that now. So, Um, this is just a very common thing that I see with people where they get, they get teased into the industry for, for one reason. And then they see this harsh reality of their first job. And then they think that that's how it is across the board. And it's not true. There are so many other ways to win and so many other ways that people operate their businesses. So I would hate to extinguish your flame just because you're, you're frustrated with how it is right now. Um, but hopefully that, that, that helps also pop-ups, man, like, you can, you can have one job that, that, that pays your bills and then because you like the fast-paced, guest-focused environment, maybe you do a pop-up once a month and that gives you your, your quote-unquote fix uh, for the day and you're doing something else uh, for all the other times. Um, I think that there's, there's definitely room for that. Uh, if culinary school is a good option because you want to make it to Michelin star restaurants, if you feel like your experience at the, at the, uh, in South Dakota sets you up, To get into a Michelin star restaurant, you don't necessarily need culinary school, but because you say that you want to build your own place, and if you feel like you don't have the chops to have marketing and finance and and, and accounting and, and management under wraps, maybe there's value in you going to a school maybe for you know, business. But yeah, I hate to end like this because this is uh, such, it feels like a cop out, but truly I don't have enough context on you. I don't know what, like we haven't talked through enough of these finer details and that's what I do in things like coaching calls. And I, I, for those of you that have been kind of on the fence about it, I did just lower the price on it because I want to make it a little bit more accessible for listening this far on the show, getting through direct answer. You can use code end of the show for another discount on that, on that if it's something that you want to continue talking through. And I also do, uh, three-month-long coaching relationships with people so that they can work through a specific transition. So if it's something that you want to uh, talk through more, uh, I I I hope that helps. But you're also super young. So I think that in 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 three years, your perspective on the industry is gonna also be very different. So that'll do it for direct answer. This is the second installment here of Suit Up, the segment of the show where I share some in the moment insight of what I'm doing as a co-founder of a food focused startup. So at Voyager's table right now, we had an insane win last week where we did our first out of city event. And that was a dinner as a team. So my co-founder and I did 12 people in a super small dining room. It was five courses. Uh, We've already gotten some requests to do more dinners across the border there. And that stems from my initial pitch to do these open to the public events. And I'm going to call them pop-ups. My co-founder, my business partner doesn't like calling them pop-ups. Um... We're going to call them voyage dinners. And we hope to uh, break even and use them as a way to surprise and delight our current clients or potentially lead uh, certain people to more business. And this is a totally different way about thinking about structure compared to my first pop-ups because there's a clear and measurable outcome with these where and and there isn't a huge pressure to be profitable. That was something that I really struggled with with my first pop-ups. I really wanted them to be uh, more profitable than a restaurant. But the problem is when you're um, Um, Doing them on a less regular cadence, they need to be more profitable than a restaurant that is profitable. Does that make sense? So the business doesn't um, run on these dinners, which is great. And they really keep us excited and creative and plant our flag as an ambitious food company. And that's ultimately the goal. So stay tuned for uh, the, the, the tickets that I'm going to be releasing for three months worth of pop-ups this week, hopefully today. And I can't wait to share with you how those are going because uh, me getting back into pop-ups is a really exciting thing. And, and I'm very excited to do it with the resources of, of a company that I'm, that I'm a part of um, as opposed to just me and my ragtag band of, uh, of people that are doing pop-ups with me. Okay, as promised, I always include a struggle with suit up, and I realize with this segment I should keep it to my own personal struggles. I don't want to make someone else's problems part of this show or or divulge any any information with things that we're dealing with internally. So I, I would I would like this. <laughs> see, see how things change? On episode two, I'm, I'm realizing that I should probably do this a different way. So when I first started doing a lot of business development for the company, attempting to acquire new clients, get more events scheduled, I realized that I was really bad about talking about money with clients. It was the last thing that I wanted to get to because I was always scared that it would give some element of sticker shock, right? Because most of the events we're pursuing are not $500 events. They're four or five-figure projects. So I've adopted this technique from this guy called uh, named Ramit Sethi. It's called a briefcase technique. And I've used this before with employer negotiations, but not really with clients before. And I've linked it up um, below so you can watch the whole thing as far as how he explains what the briefcase technique is. But basically, it involves doing an immense amount of research uh, and asking a lot of questions and proving why you're an amazing fit and how you're going to go above and beyond what their expectations are. And then and only then, do you talk about money? And if you've done it right, it becomes a mere triviality. And it's a really beautiful thing when it works. When you make someone realize that you can help them look like a rock star or blow their guests away, it truly becomes this priceless thing. And then money doesn't really matter anymore. And I actually used it yesterday to triple the revenue that we're going to bring in for an event in June. And I know with stuff like this in practice, uh, it, it, it sometimes can be weird if you do it on the phone. I actually like prefer to send it through as an email email. Um, Because then they have the time to have whatever reaction they have uh, in their own time, in their own space, and it's not like you're standing on the other line after you've delivered this figure and you're waiting what they have to say. Um, and with stuff like this, I think practice makes perfect. Uh, I think I need to develop a little bit more confidence with sales. I need to decide what that archetype client is. And once I start to notice patterns, that's when I really start to fly because that's really how I learn best. So once I get a little bit more experience, I'm really looking forward to being a rock star at sales and business development uh, with, the, with with my company. So I hope you enjoyed some insight into my life outside of the Justin Kana personal brand that is, you know, also a nine to five. Uh, building a business is not easy, but in segments like suit up, I hope to bring you some more value through my own trials and tribulations. Okay. Non-industry story. I've got two this week. The first one is this. This is the Peak Design Tech Pouch, and I freaking love this thing. I just picked this up um, only because I realized uh, at a certain point I was really struggling with uh, forgetting things in certain bags, uh, more tech-related items, whether it's a charger or a cable uh, or an adapter, and um, this makes it so that I can go from my backpack to this new sling bag that I have, um, and everything is in here. What I really, really like about it is the fact that when it opens up, it's not a giant rat's nest of a thing. Uh, maybe the people on on video can see it if I'm um, showing it accurately. There's also a bunch of um, really interesting uh, videos where people review this. And I don't know, there's a bunch of people that recommend this, but I like this because um, everything that I have fits neatly inside of it. And um, for anybody that a couple of people have reached out to me recently saying that they um, they're getting into cameras, they're getting more into tech. If you frequently switch bags a lot and you have a, you know, daily carry that you you frequently flex on, this is a great um, um, piece of of kit for you to add to your to your to your arsenal. I know it's 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 not cheap. It's a $60 pouch, um, but the materials are great. Um, it has the flexibility to turn into a bag of its own, if that's something that you're into. Um, but yeah, that that is linked up below if you want to go ahead and check it out. The second thing that I want to chat through in Non-Industry Story is a show on Netflix that I hope you've watched. If you haven't, you're missing out. It's called Love, Death, and Robots. That guy Connor that I mentioned earlier actually turned me on to it. It's like a 6 to 11 minute show. Uh, each episode is about 6 to 11 minutes. They're all animated and they're on Netflix and they're all different in storyline, so they don't form a cohesive season. So each one 6-minute episode is different from the next 10-minute episode. And they go from, like, three robots walking around in a post-apocalyptic world to the story of how Yogurt took over the world. And the first episode is this insanely gory... Humans telepathically controlling these fighting beasts, and then two women making out at the end—it's crazy, right? And, and I think it's insanely entertaining, and it's super digestible. And if you ever liked um, video game cutscenes, like the the story that happens in between your playable moments in video games, it's very similar to that. Uh, Anna doesn't really like them; she kind of thinks they're stupid. But who cares? If you're a nerd like me, I highly recommend Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. Check it out. The only update I've got for you folks is to remind you to leave your voice messages for me on Anchor or email me through my site to get featured on episode 100. I would love to feature you saying something nice or to have you use the Emulsion podcast to pitch whatever you want to say, within reason. Keep me posted if there's anything else I can do for you folks. This has been episode 96. Thank you so much for listening. Roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show, and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave the Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast podcasts platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes, and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. that Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one. But you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, Excuse me. Pardon me.